0: Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 36 and it's time to return to Croserland. Before we do that, let's step back a little and consider the effect of action beyond Africa that was having an influence on the continent, particularly the southern reaches. Adam Smith may have been somewhat bemused, as American historian Noel Mostad writes in his book Frontiers, to find that the very year in which his masterwork was published saw the start of a struggle on the seas that rested on its own declared twin pillars of global destiny, America and the Cape of Good Hope. The American colonies were in the process of being lost to Britain, as Smith published his work, and a wider war was buffeting the seas. The Cape had been drawn into the American War of Independence, which changed the destiny of Southern Africa. It's not well remembered these days, but America's early history is interwoven with South Africa's. It invested in the Cape a new and lasting significance. Possession of Cape Town had never been considered by the British or even the French, but by the last quarter of the 18th century, that was going to change. It was crucial as the battle for India intensified, along with the need to control trade to the east from Europe. As Britain lost America, it sought India and, by default, the Cape. It became a maritime focal point, along with the Caribbean, Gibraltar and Malta. Controlling the seas around these places meant the nation-state had a dominant strategic position. The Cape was going to retain its value through to the mid-20th century, and this was going to accelerate matters in South Africa. By the 17th century, the Portuguese, Spanish and Dutch had had their turns at mastery of the seas. Now it was France and Britain seeking to seize the oceans for their national interest. Europe's trans-oceanic ascendancy is one of the astonishing stories of human development over the past 500 years. However, for many in Africa, Asia, and America, it would bring misery, slavery, and exploitation. The first factories were actually the name given to East Indiamen ships laden with spices, tea, calico, cotton, silk, ivory, dyes, saltpeter, and other treasures, which picked up the changing monsoons for the voyage down the Indian Ocean and round the Cape. Competition between France and Britain became fiercely centred on three points, North America, the Caribbean, and India. Then it became an unceasing belligerent battle for ultimate supremacy in the New World and the East. They fought in America for its virgin territory, in the Caribbean for a tropical empire of sugar, rum, tobacco and cotton, and in India for its rich trade and for its position in relation to China. The affirmation of British naval pride in this century was symbolically created in the anthem Rule Britannia, which was composed in 1740. Bourbon France had the successor to Richelieu and Colbert and the Duc de Chaussil, who reorganized the French Navy, then signed a treaty of alliance with the rebellious American colonists in 1778. After Britain lost America, it increased its interest in the Caribbean and the Indian Ocean. The tropical plantations needed slaves, and they were reaping enormous riches in sugar, rum, and cotton. Textile exports from Britain multiplied ten times between 1750 and 1770, Raw cotton came from the West Indies, and the French began taking these islands from the British, one by one. England was now in trouble because Spain had allied herself with France in 1779, and Holland broke a 100-year-old entente when she joined the alliance against Britain in 1780. The American War of Independence was a world war. The entry of the Dutch into the war on the side of the French meant the Cape was no longer neutral. Plans for its seizure were set in motion in London, and the French were informed through spies. So from March 1781, the French began sending large naval squadrons through Table Bay. Up to now, the British-controlled island of St Helena was more practical for the English. The Cape was a problem for the heavy, slow ships of the time, but strategically and suddenly the tip of Africa turned into an extremely important port. Violent winds and a difficult anchorage had never endeared the Cape to seamen, except in emergencies or for strategic reasons. The British felt more was achieved by staying with the trade winds all the way up to St Helena after rounding the Cape. The island was halfway up the South Atlantic after all and closer to home. The French preferred Mauritius and, to be quite blunt, who wouldn't? It was roughly in the same position to St Helena but on the other side of Africa, the east. Neither St Helena nor Mauritius, though, were capable of supporting the fleets and garrisons required. Ironically, both St Helena and Mauritius drew provisions from Cape Town. So South Africa's infatuation with Mauritius is really not a new thing, honeymoons aside. By capturing the Cape, the British would give themselves a crucial fortified base on the sea route to India, but would also be able to limit the usefulness of Mauritius for the French. If the French controlled Cape Town, the reverse would be true, and St Helena would be in a spot of logistic bother. Command of the French squadron was given to Bal Saint-Tropez-des-Suffrens all accounts a remarkable sailor although described as vast in girth sloppy in personal habits and suffering from a bad temper but he was easily the best sailor of his generation better than any british person at the time later napoleon was to exclaim oh why did he not live in my time i could have made him our nelson and affairs would have taken a different course belle saint-tropez de Suffren was given the task of seizing the cape of good hope opposing him was commodore johnston commander of the British squadron. He had been chased out of America where Congress said he was incompatible with their honour. Commodore Johnston was not well liked within his own navy, largely due to his propensity to order acts of violence against his crew. Both the British and French tried to disguise their intentions when it came to Cape Town. First, Johnston sailed from Britain on the 13th of March 1781 with a fleet that was supposedly tasked with securing Gibraltar. Apart from his fighting ships, Commodore Johnston had 35 armed transports packed with troops. His French adversary, Suffren sailed nine days later with troops supposedly bound for the West Indies. Both fleets broke off from their respective routes as soon as they were beyond the sight of land and headed south to Cape Town. Unfortunately for both commanders, but particularly the British, they both planned to water at the Portuguese colony of the Cape Verde Islands. Johnston arrived first on the 11th of April and anchored off Porta Praia. No scout ships were posted. No defensive positions were laid out. His flagship didn't even have its guns pointed seaward and ready. So in what was a mutual surprise, Suffren found him there five days later on the 16th of April. Most of the British sailors were ashore collecting supplies. They were fishing or enjoying themselves in the brothels of Porta Praia when sails were spotted closing in from the northeast. What followed was, I suppose, similar to shooting fish in a barrel. Suffren quickly realised it was Johnston's fleet and sailed straight into the harbour, blasted away at the English ships, sinking many, then withdrew and continued sailing to Cape Town. Suffren landed at the Cape on the 21st of June. His troops were left there to bolster the Dutch defences, and then the French commander sailed onwards to India. He defeated the British Admiral there, Sir Edward Hughes, took control of the waters around India, and was about to commit the coup de grace on the English in India when word arrived that peace had been signed in Europe. So Suffren sailed home. Then, in what is typical of these times, he anchored around the Cape at precisely the same moment as Commodore Johnston arrived with his somewhat depleted fleet from Cape Verde by way of St Helena. The British went over to congratulate Suffren for beating them up. The good Dutchmen have received me as their saviour, gloated Suffren. but among the tributes which have flattered me, none has given me more pleasure than the esteem testified by the English who are here. That was as close as the French ever came to the command of the Indian Ocean. Hughes was saved by the bell, if you like. The French were ashore in South Africa and controlled the Cape for the next three years. But what Suffren had done was cement the importance of Southern Africa into British strategic thinking. From now on, the Cape had to be unequivocally neutral or it must be British. While all of this was taking place on the high seas, the colonists in the Cape found themselves at war on two fronts with two different groups of people, the Khosa and the San. As the Dutch East India Company feebly tried to stop Trekpurs from advancing beyond the Khamtus River near Algoa Bay, a true frontier had developed from 1770 onwards. It was a loose, ill-defined area along the southeast coast, and the Dutch colonists had now hit a human barrier that stopped their freedom of movement. That barrier was the Troza people. The sand was something else. They harassed the Trekboers, as we know by now, all the way along the Great Escarpment through the Sneelbach. The Koi had also lost their cattle in this area and reverted to hunting, gathering, and plundering. We've heard what happened through the latter decades of the 1700s, and I'm going to spend more time digging into these raiders later. Right now, we're going to focus on the House of Paolo, the Causa chieftains. Of the Czech boers who'd crossed the Chamtus and ignored the Brankishochte limit set by the VOC, none was tougher nor more ruthless than Willem Prinzler. He was an elephant hunter and cattle trader who began to dominate the area and his sons and grandsons would all become household names amongst the new people developing around the frontiers, the Afrikaners In the 1770s, Willem Prinsloo, had been the one who invariably offered to get runaway slaves and military deserters back for the VOC authorities for a certain remuneration, of course. He was a bounty hunter. For five decades, the Prinsloo family would be synonymous with frontier mischief. They were accused of being directly responsible for starting many of the troubles that turned into wars. It takes two to tango, of course, but we know that their boisterous presence remained an active disturbing element in the Eastern Cape until they were hanged by their necks until dead early in the 19th century, the first Africana martyrs of the British and not the last. At some point between 1770 and 1772, Willem Prinzler set himself up on two farms in the Fish River Valley well beyond the VOC's Brankie-Huchte-Limit. He was duly ordered to appear in Cape Town to face the music, once the governor found out. In 1774, he and members of his family wrote a petition pleading for permission to use the Eastern Cape, which they said was, Fruitful for stock and cultivation. They wrote about its supply of game for food. They implored, entreated, groveled, requested, and prayed for forgiveness, but pleaded to the great powerful sirs, as they put it to be permitted to live there. It appears that both the great powerful sirs and the princelers were pretending that the land was vacant. It wasn't. It was already owned. Other Afrikaners were also beginning to arrive, some abandoning their sand-besieged farms in the Sneerbach, including commando leader Adrian von Jasfeld. He'd given up trying to defeat what Mostat calls his tiny enemies, the sand and followed Prince Lou eastwards into the apparently fine and tranquil pastures between Branki's Wuchte and the Fish River. Meanwhile, across the Fish River, the Khoza were experiencing their own combination of conflict and succession. Paolo had died in 1775, and Kaleka survived him by only three years. Then Kawuta reigned between 1778 and 1794, and he was regarded as a weak ruler, described by one of his subjects as only a shadow of his predecessors. He was completely unable to assert his authority over the other members of his father's lineage, which didn't bode well for the Xhosa, who were now facing their biggest threat, the colonists and the trekboers. If you're fighting each other, and there's an even more dangerous threat from outside your circle, generally you don't survive. That was to prove true in the Eastern Cape. One brother called Ngwoko, in Xhosa phraseology, grew out of Kaleka's back to overshadow both Kawuta and Kawuta's right-hand brother, Velelu. Remember a few podcasts back, I spoke at length about the importance of the right-hand brother in Koza royal lineage. The king's uncle, Maito, happened to be both a diviner and a dissident. Kawuta attempted to meet this challenge by appointing dependent commoners to positions of authority, usually earmarked for the royal line, the Amachawi. In the words of Koza oral historians, his appointees were less respected than the children of other women, but he did manage to absorb the large Koi clan called the Kikwa into his kingdom. Gikwa chief Inquilisa was not subordinated to the royal Chawe line, but was given his own ox, the Inchinga, and a large part of the country to control. We believe now that he did this to counterbalance the power of the Kauka Ngwevu clan, which had been given special status all the way back to Chawe himself. And remember, Kauka was thought to be the founder of the Kauza nation. What transpired was that the heads of the Inchinga and Kauka became deadly rivals, each claiming to be the main counselor of the king. Followers of both were living near the great place, the king's home, and were the most dependable soldiers at a time of war. Because they opposed each other implacably, they became a rallying point for formation of internal factions. But over time, the competition between these two factions cross-cut the natural opposition between the junior chiefs and the king. The juniors kept having to choose between the Nchinga and the Kawuka, which actually stabilized the politics. This sounds counterintuitive, but let me explain. The ingenious nature of this agreement, as historian Jeff Peres notes, is best illustrated by the arrangements at circumcision. That's where the boy was circumcised before the chief and slept in the self-same circumcision lodge, controlled by the Gekwa, whereas the master of the circumcision lodge, the Inkankata, who instructed the boys in the arts of manhood, was always an Inguevu. The problem was Kawuta, the weak king, damaged this stable process, leaving Chief Rarabe free to build up power in his region. One of the main reasons for Rarabi's rise inside Khoza politics was because he had spearheaded that Khoza drive against the Khoi and the San. For example, Chieftainess Hoho was forced to cede her land to Rarabi in exchange for tobacco, marijuana, or what we call dacha, and dogs. Sounds an odd combination, doesn't it? Dogs, of course, were extremely valuable as hunting animals and for security as they are today. Dacha was the main form of trade in those days. Rarabi, like the Czech boys, was the terror of the San Bushmen? He killed every single one he found, including their children of whatever age. Rarabe burnt down whatever dwellings the San had erected. As Rarabe expanded his reach westwards towards the Dutch settlers approaching from the Cape, he ran into the Imidange Koza clan who regarded themselves as the guardians of the western reaches of Koza land. But the Imidange's old enemies, the Guali, decided they would rather recognise Rarabe setting up a perfect storm. The other important chiefs in the west of Paolo's kingdom were the Kunukwebe and the Mbalu, who refused to be subjected to Rarabe's rule. Rarabe then tried to kill Traleka's son and successor Kawuta, but apparently the latter had hundreds of armed guards, so Rarabe was forced to give up and was driven into the northern highlands, where he began to interfere in Tembu politics. Both Rarabe and his great son Mlau died in battle against the Tembu. Today, they are reported to have shouted. We have caught an old dog that has long destroyed our nation. Still, Rarabi's reputation stands high amongst his people, although his illustrious life ended in defeat. What was going to happen was his son, Nthambe, would build on his father's name. He was the true architect of Rarabi's greatness. The problem for Entlambe was his older brother had fathered two children before he died. Ntumbu was liked by the king's councillors, but Ngweka was liked by N'lambi and both were too young to rule. After some debate, Ntlambi's choice Nnika, won out, and Ntlambi then ruled as regent for the youngster. Now it was time to take aim at the other western Xhosa chieftains, and Ntlambi didn't waste time. First to go, of course, were the Imidange. Ntlambi killed their chief and drove them west of the Fish River, and here is where the Trek and the Xhosa began to butt heads. The Imidange fled slap-bang into the boers of Achta Brankishochta, The Drek Boers were not impressed and managed to co-opt Koza chiefs Gwali and Intinde, who lived west of the Fish River. The Boers and the Koza chiefs then attacked the Imadange in what became known as the First Frontier War of 1779 to 1781. The chief of the Imadange fell by a stratagem. He and some followers were enticed into picking up pieces of tobacco strewn at their feet. Then the Boers shot them. Not very subtle, the remaining senior leader, Bangela, then led the Imadunga until they disintegrated shortly afterwards. As you can see, this is not a story of the settlers acting alone. They were involving themselves in Kroza business and succession. They were working with clans who themselves were fighting other clans. Modern politicians love simplifying these things, but the late 1700s was anything but simple. Pana and Tlumbi's main rivals were the Kunukwebe under Chaka, not to be confused with Shaka, and his son Kungwa. Nklambi defeated the Qunukwebi three times, driving them westwards and deeper into the Cape Colony. What the Qunukwebi managed to do was survive three times by recruiting koi from the west of the fish to help in their fights eastwards. This all sounds confusing, perhaps anarchic, and it was. In 1780, Rarabe had proposed an alliance between himself and the Dutch in the Cape. He was highly aware of how the Trek could assist him against the Imadange, and during meetings with Dutch officials, he would often speak of the Madange as rebels. Because the Dutch had their own problems with rebels, they understood Rarabi's position. Hearing of his complaints was the newly arrived Adrian van de Asvelt, and he requested they meet. Rarabi missed this meeting for an unknown reason, but things were moving ahead. Two years later, Rarabi met Trekpoor Baron Lindeku, who was a lieutenant in the Dutch militia. It was now 1793, as Rarabi's men and a Trek Boer party travelled together on a joint raid across the Fish River, the Trek Boers balked. The small Boer party had lost its nerve and withdrew back across the Fish. But it was too late. Provoked by the Boer intervention in their domestic politics, the Khoza west of the Fish River decided to teach them a lesson. They attacked farms, driving the Trek Boers back beyond the Swartkops River, around 10 kilometres north of modern Port Elizabeth, Aka the colonial authorities in Cape Town reacted by sending a large commando to teach the Khoza a lesson in turn, and this became the Second Frontier War of 1793, and this is where the instability of Khoza politics of the time turned into anarchy. Ntlambe in and the commando forced hostile Khoza to withdraw towards Khoza chief Kawuta, the weak and possible safety. But Ntlambe was tracking these Xhosa, and before they could make it across the Kai River, he ambushed them at the Cholomka River, around thirty five kilometers south of East London. Their chief Chaka was killed, and another chief Lunga was captured. Ntlambi offered to bring Langa to the Dutch Landrost at Graf Renet, who refused to accept the captive, and then Lunga was doomed to die in captivity. Ntlambi was now the most powerful Khorsa chief in the west of Khorsa land. Eyeing this prize was Nika, the youngster, who had now turned into a man. When Inslumbi, who was his uncle, after all, refused to hand over power to Ngweka as natural heir. The boy rebelled suddenly and unexpectedly. Ngweka was only around 18, a little Alexander. He had chafed under his uncle's patronage, and now it was time up for Uncle Ntslambi. The uncle approached both the Tembu and the colonial authorities, asking for help, but none was forthcoming, and eventually Ntslambi was defeated by his young nephew. Ngika began representing himself as the king of all the Kosa, and the Thaleka were chased across the Kai to the modern district of Willow Vale. Then peace was made. However, this internal squabbling of the Xhosa was not over. A youngster by the name of Hinsa managed to escape from Ngika's clutches and would cause the new Kosa king a lot of trouble in the coming years. Ntlambe was taken prisoner, but because he was respected, he was allowed to live. He was forced to remain at Inlika's great place east of the Fish River, stripped of his power, but allowed a few wives and some cattle. And Columbia's brother and chief lieutenant, Myaluza, was angry. He had seen how his sibling was treated and began to raid both the Boers and the Clausa impartially, a kind of equal-opportunity rebel. He saw both as his enemy, an interesting statement about early Eastern Cape history. Nothing is simple in South African politics. Nika was not going to schmooze the trekkers. He was regarded as highly intelligent and was an imposing presence, and he had a dream to centralize the of power under his leadership. As you're going to hear, this started out rather well. His early years were dotted with successes, but later these became detrimental when the going got tough and he turned into a spoilt and greedy man. During his golden years, he was something like an eternal king. No other chief could pass a death sentence, for example, and yet yet he began to falter just as the colonial authorities began to focus on his kingdom. Nguika often commuted death sentences in exchange for seizing the entire herd of the accused. Private revenge for adultery was forbidden during his tenure, and the payment, yes you guessed it, was for the offending man to hand over his entire herd of cattle. Nguika wasn't finished. He extended the custom of Isisi, the death dues, where a king usually received a single cow when a commoner died without heirs in the direct line. Instead, yes, folks, Nguika seized the entire herd. I think you can see a pattern developing here. But the new young king's greed was going to be his undoing. More about Nguika's wily ways next episode. Unfortunately, we've now run out of time. Please rate the podcast on iTunes you can send me a direct message on Twitter. My handle is at Des Latham. You can also email me through the site desmondlatham.blog or desmondlatham.com. Until next week, Salakati.